Hi, I'm Katie Marquette, and you're listening to Born of Wonder. And here there is something more than just a transient experience. It's about uh, being. It's about the things that matter to me. It's about the white spaces between the paragraphs. Then God said, let there be light. It's a mistake you always made, Doc, trying to love a wild thing. There's a point in the interview with the rather eccentric photographer, Thomas Joshua Cooper, when he seems a little perplexed by the question. I know that the places you choose to make pictures have deep meaning, but then there is the notion of place as no place. 99% of your pictures don't have horizon lines, and 99% of those pictures don't have any place markers. The interviewer trails off. If you look through Cooper's catalog, you will quickly see exactly what they are talking about. We are adrift, literally at sea, in the swooning motion of a wave, stark black rocks that seem to multiply into nowhere, sometimes a fog and ice so thick we can only see a blur of white. It is only when you consult the photograph's titles that you learn what you are looking at. Such evocative lonely places as the Bransfield Strait, the mouth of the Atlantic Sound, window at the crater wall edge, Deception Island, the South Shetland Islands, etc., etc. Cooper responds to the prompt somewhat dismissively. I have no interest in making pictures of places that describe how a place looks. I have no interest in doing that. Why would anyone be interested in doing that? It just makes no sense to me. For me, the point is not to say, this is that when looking at my pictures. I'm interested in picture making rather than describing objects. My whole practice is edges, he says, edge of the world, edge of the picture, edge of the land and sea. Hello and welcome to Born of Wonder. On this podcast, we explore anything and everything that inspires wonder and awe in the world. I'm Katie Marquette, and I'm so glad you are joining me today. So I was thinking of doing an episode sort of about uh, extremes, about the extreme personality type, people who are drawn to the edge. I mentioned in last week's episode how I was reading these John Krakauer books, uh, Into the Wild, Into Thin Air. My husband and I are actually reading out loud uh, into the into the wild which I really recommend as a great book to read out loud it has sort of that magazine writing style so it's very uh, thought-provoking but very readable and engaging uh, and for those of you who don't know the story of into the wild it's about a young man um, named Chris McCandless who would who changed his name to Alexander Supertramp Alex McCandless his trail name who was from uh, a pretty, you know, middle-class, well-off family in Virginia, and after college decided to hit the road and basically disappeared um, for, uh, as far as his family was concerned. He sort of purposefully lost himself in uh, being a, a rambler, being a troubadour out on the road. He was an extremely intelligent person, um, immensely romantic about uh, nature and a man's place in it, and he had a lot of issues with capitalism and consumerist society and uh, I think it's a really interesting story for our age. I think it provokes a lot of questions. 
And in any case, he ended up finding his way uh, to the Alaska wilds, uh, just absolutely the, the Yukon territory, absolutely harsh, harsh conditions. And unfortunately, he would die out there. And the reactions to his death were varying. You know, some people hailing him as sort of a prophet of, of the age, of sort of a tragic martyr to modernism and uh, some other people, especially some sort of backwoods hiking, hunting Alaskans thought he was pretty dumb, thought he was not prepared and that he sort of deserved what he got. But in any case, he was a very interesting young man who uh, left, you know, um, uh, a decent amount of writing in his journal. And we learn a lot about the sort of circuitous route he took around the country before what he called his great Alaskan odyssey. So it's a very, very interesting story, um, provokes a lot of interesting questions. And in any case, he is just one of many in a long line of people who have uh, been drawn to extremes, um, whose ideals have prompted an extreme lifestyle, uh, a, a purging, a sort of pilgrimage into the wilderness. And John Krakauer introduces us to a number uh, of such people over the past uh, couple centuries. It's very interesting. Um, it would be really, I'd like to do an episode sort of on this personality type because I think uh, my husband brought this up and I think it's a good point. It's it's sort of a pilgrim personality type. It's really ultimately a very religious personality type. Uh, I think many saints had this personality. It is a uh, convicted um, sense that of living uh, authentically and living uh, in line with your values, no matter what that means, no matter what that means giving up, no matter how out of step that me makes you with the rest of society. So um, I've mentioned before how intriguing I find people like this. I myself, uh, I think it's because I have a lot of ideals, but I, um, for various reasons, am okay with uh, not, um, I guess, living up to all of them. I sort of concede uh, to to certain aspects of modern life and things like that and accept them, but I'm very interested in people who don't accept them. So I, that's that's an interesting concept for an episode, I think, but that's really not what I'm going to be talking about today. I'm going to be reading you an essay that is really all about, uh, you know, basically how we can't capture nature. And maybe that's a big part of this personality too, is about immersing yourself in it instead of trying to control it, tame it, capture it in a photograph, or use it for resources in a sort of mass scale way. Uh, but when I was thinking about edges, I thought of Thomas Joshua Cooper and that great quote, um, my whole practice is edges, edge of the world, edge of the picture, edge of the land and sea. He is a fascinating photographer. He was featured in a New Yorker article a couple of years ago. You know, there's almost never anything that I like to read in The New Yorker, but we continue to subscribe because every now and then there will be a profile like this one that will introduce me to somebody I never knew about and becomes, you know, a fascination of mine. I ordered, there aren't many, um, you know, books uh, available of his photographs, which is unfortunate, but there are some and I ordered one and his photographs are absolutely beautiful. I'm going to link in the show notes to this essay where I include a few of them, but you can also just Google him. 
Uh, he, I'll explain in this essay, he uses a very old camera and he goes to sort of the edges of the earth, uh, all over the earth. He's almost died many, many times uh, in pursuit of, of these photographs, but he arrives at these places and he only takes one photo. So after all this, maybe uh, weeks, months of trekking, everything like that, can you imagine all of us wanting to, I mean, I'm thinking of myself who want, would want to take about a thousand photos of the whole trip. And when I got there and everything like that, I would want to be coming home with a huge collection of photographs. But he arrives at these places and he takes one photo. And I find that really, really interesting. So that's what this essay is about. It's about what we can and cannot capture in the world, what is the value of um, sort of living uh, in the world without obsessing uh, over documenting it? Um, and I think that that, that can be very thought provoking. Um, I, I love to take photos. I value them a lot. I love to scrapbook, all these things. Um, but I think, uh, <laughs> and Chris would attest to this, sometimes it's like you just need to take one picture. I mean, you do not need to spend 20 minutes trying to get the exact right picture. And you actually get a lot less authentic pictures that way, um, where everybody's posed exactly the way you want it. Um, so I also have a Polaroid, you know, just add that to my like list of hipster, whatever interests. Um, <laughs> but I actually really love it because you just take one photo, right? Those, the film is expensive. So you're not there taking, you know, a ton of photographs and it's not, uh, you know, it's not an iPhone, it's not a pixel Android quality photo, but it captures it and it captures, uh, it often captures more authentic moments, people laughing or maybe even looking away from the camera. You see some uh, sort of real expressions from people in those photos. So I really love those Polaroids. I love um, the Polaroid albums I've made from them. Uh, so, so I'm, I'm not, you know, against photography at all, but I think, uh, when we have these amazingly advanced, uh, cameras in our hands 24 hours a day, uh, we understandably see beautiful things and, um, have beautiful experiences with our family. And we want to sort of, we have a compulsion to document it because we think that we can control time that way and control, uh, our experience of it, but we can't. So uh, I'm going to read you this essay and just leave you with that, leave you with that as a thought provoking, um, you know, something for the week to think about. Um, so I hope everything's going well. Uh, I'm, I'm recording this on the Feast of the Assumption. So happy feast day. Uh, this is was always a huge day uh, for me in years past when I went to the Basilica of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary in Baltimore City. Uh, they always did a big party and everything like that. I know that's going on tonight. Unfortunately, I won't be there. I think it's going on right now as I record this. But uh, some, please go visit that place. It's so beautiful. So um, yes, happy feast day. Uh, also should note that on my last episode, I talked a lot about the weather, was kind of whining about the weather. And as usual, whining publicly seems to have a very positive effect because the weather changed. Uh, those code red heat days went away and we've had very nice, mild weather. So we've been hiking. We um, put the toddler in the hiking backpack. We've been walking around. We went to a sunflower field. We were we saw this beautiful reservoir. We took the dogs. We've been outside. So I'm like, wow, this could, is what it could be like if I lived in a mild summer climate. So I'm appreciating it. I'm enjoying it. I do not take it for granted. So that's the other lesson, you know, besides all this very important things about um, time and mortality and capturing moments is to just sort of complain 
clean publicly and uh, then maybe your problems will be solved. So, um, <laughs> uh, but otherwise, of course, as always, please leave a review if you are enjoying the podcast on iTunes, just a few sentences, comment, that would be so great. Leave a star rating on Spotify. You can find me at bornofwonder.com. You can email me there. And uh, if you'd like to become a patron of the podcast, $2 a month, that link is on the website now and in the show notes. So I so appreciate it. And if you are a new patron and I haven't gotten you a letter, I'm sorry, uh, I will soon. August has been a little bit of a blur. It still is just every, we've had visitors and events and everything, all beautiful, wonderful things going on, but it has been pretty hectic. So hopefully I will have some time uh, soon to sort of catch up on my correspondence and I will be getting to you soon. So anyway, let's launch into this essay about Thomas Joshua Cooper. Cooper's passion for extremes doesn't end with his desire to photograph remote and dangerous locations. Perhaps the most extreme aspect of his art is the camera itself. A clunky 5x7-inch field wooden box built in 1898. He lugs his awkward antique to the literal ends of the earth, shooting with a long exposure, sometimes minutes, sometimes hours, and he only takes a single photo. En route, he has nearly drowned, been run over, arrested for trespassing, subject to the coldest and most extreme weather, and he leaves with only one photograph. While Cooper clearly has a very specific artistic vision, I think there is something here in his philosophy that we can all learn from. Recently, as a Christmas gift to myself, I finally made an album of the photos I took while on a horseback riding trek with my sister from the east to the west coast of Scotland six years ago. It was an incredible trip, taking us along open beaches, rugged coastlines, and deep into the monstrously beautiful and lonely western highlands. We stayed in the United Kingdom's most remote inn, only accessible to walkers and riders. It was a -a once-in-a-lifetime trip, and I wanted the photos to remember it by. When I look back on this trip, I find myself a little regretful. I was so obsessed with capturing the experience, I sometimes wonder if I lost some of the immediacy of it. I took literally hundreds of photos and bossily demanded my younger sister do the same. I strapped a GoPro camera to my helmet and came home with hours of footage. I'm grateful for the videos and the photos. They are beautiful and I can share them with friends and family to give them a glimpse of what we experienced and occasionally a specific photo will jog a buried memory. And yet, I find myself constantly saying, you know, this doesn't even capture it at all. How could a 4x6 photograph possibly convey the immensity, the grandeur, the sublime, when I stood up in my stirrups and looked down below us at a valley so deep and so wide it threatened to swallow me whole? How could I capture the sound of my highland pony's hooves on jagged rocks and mud, or the very specific squelch as we all jumped off to walk our horses through a treacherous bog? Could I capture the spray of the North Sea, that first beach gallop, or the way the sun felt after 18 miles hard riding? I'm trying to tell you about it here, in words, and in a way I think writing is more honest, more real, and gets closer to bringing you there, to that very specific place, that very specific moment. My perfect descriptive photos that try to box in the wilds of Scotland Well, they can't capture it. Frankly, they don't even come close. Perhaps it is no surprise that Cooper, born in San Francisco, has lived in Scotland for the past three decades. There is nothing like the Scottish landscape, so immense and beautiful and raw, to make your camera suddenly feel impotent. So why do we try to capture it? 
Most of us have thousands of photos on our phones. It is only recently that these small computers we carry around with us have the ability to capture everyday moments in astonishing detail. And we do try to capture those moments. Most parents, myself included, have a practical shrine to their children on these devices. And many of us, writing from experience here, will often spend a weepy evening scrolling back through these photos to see how quickly they're growing up. And yet when I see these photos, I am once again uttering the same phrase, this doesn't capture it. How can I possibly capture that raised eyebrow look my daughter gives, the one that makes me think she's watching every skeptical face I make, or her joyful, goofy, tongue-out smile when we play our peekaboo games, or the way her little hand reaches up and strokes my arm as I hold her in the carrier on a morning walk? I can't. Even a perfectly wrought photograph capturing every detail of her face doesn't capture it. That it, that part of her that is unique and irreplaceable and wildly, wonderfully real. In an episode of Seinfeld, George asks Kramer why he would spend money to go to the movie theater when he could watch the same movie on TV. Maybe an even more relevant question today in the age of streaming than it was back in the 90s. Kramer responds, well, why go to a fine restaurant when you can just stick something in the microwave? Why go to the park and fly a kite when you can just pop a pill? It's a funny line, especially with the way Michael Richards delivers it, but it's making an excellent point. Especially today, in an age of virtual reality, of Zoom and FaceTime, of Instagram and Facebook, when we can watch videos and see photos of nearly every place in the world, why bother? Couldn't we all just live our days staring into the matrix world that is our smartphone? Sadly, many people do, but I think most people know it doesn't capture it. Why else, after nearly two years of pandemic on and off quarantines, would we still be so desperate to return to in-person life? After all, there has been no better time in history to live from the confines of your house. But we are physical, spatial, breathing beings. We need touch and air and closeness. We need to be there, to feel another person in space and time, to see the edge of the sea and smell the salt while the wind whips our hair and our eyes. A picture can remind us of real life. It can be a way of remembering, but it will never be even close to the real thing. And it is no substitute for it. My pictures are not about the specifics of geography, Thomas Joshua Cooper told The New Yorker. They attempt to be about what it's like to stand in a very specific place. I think of Joan Didion, who wrote of the importance of keeping a notebook. Remember what it is like to be me. Photographs can serve the same purpose. What was this moment like? We cannot stop time or slow it down, though I think our obsessive picture-taking and documenting gives us the illusion we can. We cannot save a precious moment, and in fact, we may lose the moment altogether in our attempt to freeze it in its precise detail. You cannot capture it. But maybe that is the gift of human mortality. It is all fading, nothing lasts. There is a profound beauty in giving up that grasp on the world, that attempt to hold it in our hands, in a pixelated, perfectly wrought image. Let it go. Remember, and maybe sometimes forget, and just live. And to end with a quote by Toni Morrison, at some point in life, the world's beauty becomes enough. You don't need to photograph, paint, or even remember it. It is enough. No record of it needs to be kept, and you don't need someone to share it with or tell it to. So 
So I hope you enjoyed that essay. You cannot capture it. I will link in the show notes. And again, I have some some photographs that I put in the essay um, from Thomas Joshua Cooper and a link to the original New Yorker article. Uh, You can read that there. So uh, maybe worth checking out. Uh, Just just rereading it made me think of a few moments that uh, I think are relevant here. I remember distinctly one time in college, I was, we, we went to this small liberal arts college on the river and uh, and there was this beautiful bench that was overlooking the St. Mary's River. And you'd sit there and, and watch these incredible sunsets. And so I, I always had, I, we had cameras back then. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, you know, I would often take a picture. But I distinctly remember one time I had a camera with me in my backpack. And it was this incredible evening. I had been reading or studying on this bench. And just this uh, flurry of pink, red clouds came over me. And it was reflecting perfectly on the water. And I almost took a photo. And I was... I I consciously told myself, don't take a picture, you'll remember it better. And I remember that day still because I didn't take a picture. I really, I took the time, I said, I'm just going to memorize this. Um, I just really look at this and I'm going to remember it in that way. And sometimes, you know, as much as I love photos, sometimes I feel like I'm remembering the photo instead of the actual moment. And that can be a risk when you take too many photos. So uh, sometimes maybe make a conscious effort to do that just when you're tempted to just say, I'm actually just going to remember this. Um, Again, I love to take photos. I will keep taking photos, but it's sort of a balance thing and making sure uh, we understand the limitations. Um, you know, and because these are just objects, right? I mean, we can't take any of these photos with us when we die. <laughs> um, and someday people are going to be sifting through all these photos if we ever print them off our phones or if our, you know, whatever through our data cloud. I barely understand this. Um, you know, the online world where all our photos exist, somebody will someday sift through them and probably delete them, you know, wipe them out, you know, like nothing, none of these things are going to last. So, uh, don't, don't get too possessive about them. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, I, this this is sort of related. Is that I, we, uh, my mother, she passed away, uh, as I think most of you know. I've mentioned before, uh, eight years ago now. It's been a long time. Um, but she she was an entrepreneur and CEO, and she built a business and everything. And me and some of her colleagues were going through some of her things last weekend because they're moving offices. And she had so many awards. She was very accomplished, very recognized, and I'm very proud of her and all that she did. But, uh, you know, at the end of your life, you're going to be looking at, (laughs) you're going to have some people looking at a pile of awards saying, what do we do with all this stuff? What do we do with this? Uh, So, you know, the accomplishment, the value in it is, were those colleagues and who were lifelong friends, you know, and the, and the good work that they did uh, through their business and the other things they accomplished. That was the, that was what mattered, not the stuff, not even the, the recognition, you know, um, it's relationships, it's things that you can't capture that in a photograph or in any other way that, that, that all this stuff is, is so meaningless. Uh, so just, I think it's just good to be reminded of that sometime because I think that we can get very lost in sort of, you know, these very, what are ultimately, it's sort of ironic because all this stuff is very abstract, whereas our relationships are actually what are real, but it's, it, they're harder to quantify and we can't hold them in our phones. We can't post about them adequately, right, on Instagram or something like that. So anyway, that's my little philosophical musing about all that. Uh, again, I think it would be very interesting to do a sort of pilgrim, uh, pilgrim episode, sort of the pilgrim person 
personality, the one, the, the extreme pilgrim. So uh, yes, I would recommend Into the Wild by John Krakauer. We're really enjoying it. And I'm going to leave you with um, with with some music from Vivaldi, which I, I've played Vivaldi quite a few times, I think. But I think I mentioned that Jojo has this book that, uh, you know, plays all these themes from the Four Seasons. And one that I really love is uh, is Winter 2, the Largo um, movement uh, of Vivaldi's Four Seasons. And I know we're still in summer, but this uh, this movement makes me feel like I'm sitting by a fire and just sort of uh, so cozy with a cup of tea. So maybe you can feel like that too. It's, it's just beautiful too. So um, I'm going to p- play a recording here of uh, Isaac Perlman playing. So it's lovely to listen to. So that's again, Vivaldi Largo uh, Winter 2. Um, yeah, so thank you so much for listening. I hope it was thought provoking and stick around uh, till next week. And I will talk to you then. I'm Katie Marquette and this is Born of wonder. It's about uh, being. It's about the things that matter to me. It's about the white spaces between the paragraphs. Then God said, let there be light. It's a mistake you always made, Doc, trying to love a wild thing. 